Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we have a chance to gather here together and hear your word and celebrate your sacrifice for us. I ask that you would have mercy on my murmurings and my stumblings, that the truth of your Christ would be proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning to you all, and for those of you who are joining us today as visitors, we're pleased to see you. We're so thankful you get a chance to join in with us. And as always, the faces we know, we're pleased to see you as well and get a chance to spend the time with you today. I will uh, apologize up front. I'm pinch hitting for Father Sean this morning. Uh, so I have not had nearly as much time as I would like to devote to a sermon for you. Uh, so in all things that are good, give God glory. In all things that are lacking, that's me. Father Sean is out this week. Um, he has had some uh, more exaggerated uh, allergic symptoms. Uh, and he's talked with his doctor who has told him they don't think it's COVID, but in interest of caring for you all, uh, he's going to get a test just to be sure because of the ministry he does with you. So for that reason, he's not here this week. Uh, we should know in a couple of days uh, what's going on there when the results come in. And the clergy who we had a long meeting last week, we're going to maintain additional distance from you just in case, because we love you and we want to care for you. So, um, today's text, it, I will mainly spend in Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Jonah with me. Um, I, I want to start out, we're gonna take a little walk through Jonah here. Um, I am curious, who among you know that Jonah has an air of satir satire within its recounting? Have you ever heard that? Yes, satire. I'm not saying it's made up, not like the satire of uh, our Western writing but it is satirical in nature. The authors, as they recount the life of Jonah, want you to pick up on some really important things, and they have, they have presented it in such a way uh, that it is satirical in nature and helps us see. So if you've never heard that before, which it seems like that's where most of us is, let's take a walk through Jonah for a moment and orient ourselves to the message that the Holy Spirit has for us. So Jonah is a prophet. He's a rather reluctant prophet uh, in that he's not much interested in forgiveness to his enemies, uh, which is kind of, kind of an important point with Jesus. He wants us to forgive our enemies and pray for him. Uh, Jonah, Jonah hasn't got that message and internalized it. So here's the satire uh, bit. 
there are players in Jonah that are, are cast, God has cast in their distinct roles. We have pagans and we have the prophet. And the pagans are never behaving like pagans. They're behaving like repentant God followers. And the prophet is never behaving like a prophet. He's behaving like someone who hasn't quite put the message together. So the word of God comes to Jonah, we see in chapter one, and he says, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is filled with the enemies of Israel. These are not their buddies. Uh, They are enemies, harassers. Go to Nineveh and proclaim against them. Uh, It says specifically in verse 2 of chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, that that big city, it's, it's a large city for the time, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, whenever we have a situation where God tells us, you've crossed a border, if he takes the time to inform us of that, we should pay attention because he doesn't do things without purpose. And if he's telling us, he's inviting us into something. We see it all the way back in Genesis. Does he walk through the garden and say, Adam and Eve, I know you ate that fruit. Get over here. No, he says, hey, where are you? Where are you? You know, it's, it's time to walk together. What's going on? He's inviting an interaction. These are important points. And one of the most important, perhaps, as we're walking through the Old Testament looking forward to Christ is with um, uh, Moses on the mountain. You know the story of the golden calf, right? Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. And when God finished giving them to him, he says, okay, while you've been up here, everyone else has been making the golden calf My anger is going to burn against them. I'll take them out. Don't worry. I'll stay true to my promise. Moses will make a new nation with you. But stay away from me because I want to burn against them now. That's very weird, right? If God's going to bring judgment, you'd think he just, let's bring it. But no, he tells Moses his intention. And what does Moses do? Moses intercedes. He says, no, don't, don't do that, Lord. Don't do that. For your name's sake, lest the nations say you took us out here to kill us. For your name's sake, don't do that. If you have to do something, you take me, I'll bear it and and spare them. Does that sound familiar at all? We can hear the echoes of Christ. But God says, no, that's not necessary. I'll spare them because of the intercession. Prophets again and again are sent to Israel They have the message of, you've transgressed. And normally you get, here's what you did. And here's what God's going to do, unless you do this. So, you sinned. This is the judgment coming. Here's what you need to do to repent. Jonah, the prophet Jonah, he's not down with this this, uh, pattern of prophetic uh, voice. Um, he gets told to go, and he runs in the opposite direction. No, no, I'm not going there. I'll go to Tarshish. Why? Well, he tells us. 
Let's jump to chapter four. In chapter four, uh, he says in verse two, after God has spared um, his, the uh, Ninevites, he says, Lord, is this, what I, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's like, I knew you were going to forgive them. I knew I would tell it and they would repent and you would forgive them. It, that kind of seems like a good thing, doesn't it? But that's not what he wants. He doesn't want his enemies forgiven. He gets upset about that. All right, so that's Jonah. Who, who are these other people that are juxtaposed? Well, in chapter 1, you have pagan sailors. When Jonah's fleeing, he gets in his boat, and as they're sailing away, uh, a great storm comes up that Jesus, or that God, casts before him. The sailors are freaking out. They're praying, they're throwing things overboard. We've got to save ourselves. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. So they wake him up. The captain says, what are you doing, sleeper? Pray to your God. No, wait a minute. Jonah, the prophet, he never says, pray to God, ask for mercy. It's his job as a prophet, but he doesn't say it. It's the pagan captain who's saying, hey, pray to your God. And then, who are you to cast lot? Oh, it's your fault we've got this going on. Well, what did you do? And he tells them, well, I'm running from my God because he wanted me to go proclaim this. Just throw me overboard and you'll be fine. Now the pagans, the pagans are like, oh, your life is too important. We'll row first. And they row for a little bit and that doesn't work, so they toss him overboard. In the meantime, begging God that he would not count his blood against them. Again, pagans not behaving the way pagans should be. And not only that, but after jo jo uh, Jonah goes overboard, now the pagans are worshiping God, offering sacrifices and vows. What? This is not how pagans are supposed to behave. What's going on here? It continues. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Doesn't, he's not real precise. He just says, it says in 3 verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't say what they've done wrong. He doesn't say what they need to do, right? Real sketchy details. Well, the whole city gets up and starts repenting. Not just that. This king, the great king of Nineveh, he gets off his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He puts on sackcloth. He's repenting too. Wild. Not only that, it gets even worse. Jonah, who will not tell them what God's message was in a way that presents the ability to come and have relationship, but the pagans get it. They repent. They're getting relationship. Their cows repent. A prophet's wandering around and doesn't grasp the importance of the forgiveness of God going out to the nations, and the very cows of Nineveh are repenting. It's all overturned. Jonah doesn't get it. 
We read from uh, chapter 2. Let's spend a little time there together. Now, he might not understand God's heart for the nations and his desire that all might be forgiven. He might have forgotten that the Israelites themselves were one of these nations. There's nothing special about the Israelites. God tells them that specifically. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. You are the least among the nations. There's nothing special about you. But Jonah does get who God is in his mercy, and that's shown in his prayer. It says in chapter 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, the, the place of the dead in the Old Testament, I cried. I was among the dead, and I cried out to you, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded you, me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now that right there, all your waves and your billows passed over me, that's a, a literary reference here. Um, Jonah is calling on Psalm 42, which we read. Uh, and it's right out of there, word for word, if you look at the Hebrew in both locations. In 42 verse 9, it says, One calls to another in the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and storms have gone over me. That's our translation in the BCP. It's the same words, though. So what's Jonah drawing on? He's drawing on a psalm which is all about desiring God, wanting to be with God, wanting to be restored to God. And he continues in verse 4 of chapter 2. Then he said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. He's not on the high mountain, at the top of the mountain. You know, you look at scripture, people have encounters with God on mountains. Mountaintop experience, you've heard that, right? It's like, I'm not down there, I'm at the base of the mountain. I'm not just at the base of the mountain, I'm under the mountain, and all the growth and vegetation is wrapped around me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Temple, that's Eden imagery. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, wherever you see the temple, there's all sorts of little coat hooks to hang the Garden of Eden and what was going on there, God dwelling with man. He's saying, even though I'm dying and I'm far from you, I'm calling to you and I will again see the reality of Eden that you will bring back into my life. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. This prayer really gets God, right? God wants restoration for us. Even in the midst of our death, dead in our sins and trespasses, he wants us to be restored to life. He wants the Eden life for us. Jonah gets that for himself, but he doesn't get that for his enemies. 
we go on to back to four. So he kind of understands who God is, and now he's at least obedient to go proclaim to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, recognizing who God is, repent. Jonah's sitting outside the city watching what will happen. Gets angry at God. See, I told you, you were going to forgive them. This is also an, an upload. It's a reference to another part of scripture. You, you probably know or are familiar with that. You are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That's from Exodus. That's Exodus 34, 6. Now, whenever you get a reference like this, it's important to pay attention. Uh, sometimes it gets changed slightly, which Jonah has done. Uh, and that gives us something to look at and consider and see what the Holy Spirit has for us. What has Jonah missed? In Exodus 34, it says, merciful and gracious, okay, he got that, slow to anger, yeah, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, uh-huh, keeping steadfast love, oh, and here's where it changes, for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Mm. That might be a little uncomfortable for us, might it? Visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. Yet Jonah kind of glosses it and just says, bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What's important here that maybe Jonah's missed? Well, when it talks about visiting the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, it's not a literal third and fourth generation. Once you sin, you've got four generations who will pay for it. This is a Hebrew idiom. Third and fourth is like as long as it takes. And he's not saying they'll pay for the sins of the father. There's other texts in the Old Testament that are very specific. He will not do that. What he is saying here is, with each new generation, you have a new chance. I am a just God, and I do not cause the next generation to suffer for the sins of the last. However, if you do not watch and learn from the sins of the last, and you recommit them yourself, if you sin like your parents sinned, I'm not just going to excuse it because you watched your parents sin. I'm a just God. If you do this as well, I will also call you to account. This is true justice, right? You don't pay for someone else, and you don't get excused. However, it's in the context of great mercy and forgiveness. If you repent, I will relent. I will not bring that upon you. Because there is one coming who will deal with that. That's Jesus. So what are we to take from all this? Well, it's really important as we look at Jonah to recognize 
the Holy Spirit, through the biblical authors, has given us a mirror to hold up. At the end of the book, God causes a plant to grow for Jonah, you might remember, and after that plant shades him and he appreciates it, he's glad he has that plant, then God takes the plant away. And once again, he is very upset with God. God, you took my plant in my shade. How dare you do this? Just kill me now. I've had enough. Kill me now. And God makes a point. He says, you're, you're worried about the plant. Nineveh, this great city with 120,000 people and as many beasts, you're not worried about them? You're worried about the plant, but not these people, these image bearers? Those who I made to walk with me in Eden? Is it good for you to be angry? And then the book ends there. There isn't a response from Jonah. The authors have given the gift to us of getting the chance to hold the mirror up. Do we want the forgiveness we have received from Christ for our neighbor? Not just our neighbor, but our enemy. You have shared the same life I have. We have all been sinned against. We have all been hurt. We all bear scars from this life. And we're nothing special because we've made our own scars on other people. We have disobeyed God too. We have broken his laws and transgressed his covenants. But scripture tells us that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. It's really important that we walk in that way and we know this is the mind of Christ because no one has a right to God's forgiveness, least of all us who believe we know that. And when we fail to proclaim that, we do not participate in the spread and strengthening of Christ's kingdom the way he has called us to, the way he has honored us with in his mercy. You know, a few weeks back, um, Father Sean got up and he apologized and asked the forgiveness of the entire congregation in the midst of the start of COVID and his frustration at times uh, on how to care for people and, and feeling like people were not attending to God. He said that he had sinned and he had gotten out of line in some of his pastoral care. And that's a big thing. It's a big thing for a pastor to get up and say, my job is to teach you who God is and what he calls us to. And because of that, I need to ask your forgiveness. I've talked with him, and to this date, no one in the congregation has actually given them their forgiveness. From the last time I talked with him, no one had actually walked up and said, I forgive you. Now, he didn't do that as a political ploy. He didn't do that to get in your good graces. He did that out of conviction. I know that because I sat with him the night before as he worked through it and came to the conclusion that he needed to ask your forgiveness. 
And for you to go back and give him your forgiveness is not to make him feel good. There's bigger things going on in this world than just making him feel good. This, friends, this is the riches of Christ for us. This is Eden life. This is things being made new. This is all things being made new that God is impatient to pour out into this world. He will not wait for the end of all time. He wants it now. And every time we act, every time we proclaim to our neighbors the forgiveness of God that we have received because of his great mercy, every time we extend the forgiveness that we are able to, through the mercies of Christ in our own heart, we are saying yes to God. We are putting aside our own importance and our own desires for what is good and true and recognizing that his ways are better and higher than ours and his ways bring healing and restoration. I encourage you to live in Eden in this time in all ways. We have a juxtaposition between Jonah and our other text. It's St. Paul. We read in Romans chapter 9 where Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. This is the mind of Christ, that we would so love our neighbor and each other that we would wish we could trade places with them, that they might be restored. That is not our job. That is Christ's job. We see that in Moses when he tries to offer that. God says, no, that is not necessary. I will do that myself. The world will know us because of our love for each other, Jesus says. And through our love for each other, they will know him better. Let us in all ways, in our walk with each other and with the world, have this mind among us that we, like the rest of the world, are sinners. We, like the rest of the world, Christ came for. We enjoy the riches of his forgiveness and his blessing. And he makes us the riches of Christ's inheritance, as Ephesians says. Oh, that all the world would join us. Walk in love and proclaim this to your neighbors, that we might have the joy of seeing that happen. And God would be glorified. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.